here tonight. Sorry for the rest of you. I was just having a little fun over here. Glad you're here tonight. Uh, if you're visiting with us, thank you, especially for being here. We are uh, studying, just began a study that is uh, kind of encompassing two things, but they're, they're interrelated. Uh, we're studying uh, the providence of God and the book of Esther. And, uh, and, and kind of looking at uh, how those two, how that concept and that book uh, kind of fit together. And uh, we, had, uh, we began our introduction uh, last Wednesday night, and we've got probably a couple of more uh, sessions that will be classified, I guess, as introduction. And then we'll begin looking at the text of Esther after that. And... Uh, kind of pulling in some of those concepts into our study of the text. All right? So we'll pick up where we left off last time, but first let's go to our Father in prayer. Father, we thank you for the blessing that is ours tonight to be able to come here and assemble peace peacefully and to open your word and study it without fear. We pray, Father, that you would always bless us with that. Uh, we know there are places that, uh, that don't have that ability, and we pray for them. We pray for their strength and for your, uh, your comfort and protection for them. We pray, Father, that as we study about providence and about your activity in the world, that uh, we would be able to understand the things that you have revealed uh, in your word about it, and that it would strengthen our faith. That's our prayer that we offer in the name of Jesus. Amen. Last week in our uh, initial lesson, we spent some time defining some terms, defining providence, uh, what we mean by that, what we don't mean by that. Uh, we talked a little bit about sovereignty, the sovereignty of God, uh, God's, uh, God's authority over His creation. Uh, providence, of course, God's activity, His superintendence uh, of the world. And uh, we distinguished providence from a couple of other things. I think, I think, I hope doing that was helpful because it, you know, if you can, if you can not only understand what something is, but if you can distinguish it from other things so that you know what it's not, I think that helps us too. And so we distinguished providence from, from on the one hand, deism which is the idea that God created the world, created the universe, but after He created it and set everything in motion, that God just stepped back from all of that and since the time of the creation has had no more contact, no more interaction with the world. That's deism. Uh, on the other hand, we distinguished providence from miracles. And we, uh, we gave examples of miracles, of course, from the New Testament and, uh, you know, the raising of the dead, the instantaneous uh, healing of the blind or, or the, 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 the paralyzed, things like that. Providence is kind of a middle point, in a way, in between those two. Uh, providence is God's activity. God is very much active even today. Though the miraculous age, I believe, uh, has, has ceased, we don't see the miracles that uh, that we find in the Scriptures today. They, they had a purpose. They served their purpose. But that doesn't mean that God is not active. 
God does not have to perform a miracle in order to perform something. Uh, and so God is still active, but His, his activity is, is not in the demonstrable ways that are characteristic of miracles. Uh, the way we perceive God's activity is, is through what we usually refer to as the natural order, the natural world, uh, natural law, that kind of thing. We can look at something that may very well be the activity of God specifically, but we don't know for certain whether or not that is what we're seeing because it's perceived by us to be in accordance with what we understand to be the natural laws of the, uh, of the world. Does that make sense? Now, the example that we gave at the end of class, that I want to call attention to again before we move forward, because we kind of rushed through it last time, is from James chapter 5. James chapter 5. <clears throat> James 5, 16 through 18. 16 is... Uh, the end of 16 especially, where James says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working, or the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So he makes that statement about the power of prayer, and then right after that he offers the example of Elijah, beginning in verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. All right? Now, if we were to go back into the book of, uh, of 1 Kings and read that account, 1 Kings chapters 16 through 18, 19 we would recall how Elijah had prayed that it wouldn't rain and it didn't. But when it came time for the drought to be over, this three and a half year drought, Elijah prayed to God to end the drought. And he would pray to God and then he would, he would go out to a particular area, a uh, hilly area, cliff area, and look out over the, uh, the ocean, the sea, to see what was happening. And eventually, in the process of his praying and looking, he looked out and the Bible said that he saw a cloud that had formed over the sea that he described as being about the size of a man's hand. And, and the cloud grew in size and moved over the land and dropped rain on the land. Now, we know from the king's account and from the account in James, that that action of God causing rain to fall was the direct result of Elijah's prayer, that God was specifically responding to his prayer. We know that because the Bible tells us that. But without that, if we were to have been, you know, if we were to been able to witness that, and we didn't know any of the background, we didn't know any of the, of the other stuff that was going on. And we just happened to be standing some distance away and looking out and seeing the same thing Elijah saw. We would see a cloud form, a cloud get bigger, a cloud make its way over the land and drop rain. 
Now, is there anything about that action that to the human eye would indicate anything out of the ordinary? No. Isn't that how rain happens? You know, if rain's going to happen here, what's going to happen? The cloud's going to form, it's going to move over, and it's going to drop rain. We understand the process. So I used to teach from James chapter 5 and from 1 Kings. I, I used to refer to that as a miracle. You know, just by looking, by reading the text and seeing Elijah prayed, and look what God did. He caused that to happen. Look at, look at the miracle that God performed. I don't call it that anymore. Uh, because I don't think it was. I don't think it was miracle as we have defined it. Because there was not anything that happened in that account that was outside of, from the human perspective, that was outside of the, the natural course of events. A miracle, as I understand those terms, a miracle would have been if God had caused a, a, uh, a deluge to come out of a clear sky. That would, that would have been miraculous because that's outside the course of normal events. Okay? Rain comes from clouds. Okay? So, miracle would have been causing the rain to fall from a clear sky, but that's not what happened here. A cloud formed and it dropped rain. We, we understand that as a natural thing. What we know, only based upon revelation, is that God did that in response to Elijah's prayer. I'm arguing that that action falls in the realm of providence. That God responded to the prayer. Did God do something? Sure He did. Did God manipulate natural law? Yeah. Did God use natural law? Yeah. Did God cause His natural laws to work in a way that, that brought about an answer to Elijah's prayer? Yeah. God did all of that. But from the human perspective, it looks natural. Okay? So that's how, that's how I'm distinguishing providence from miracle. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay. I, I like a, a quote from, um, from Guy Woods. Uh, who said this with regard to <clears throat> uh, the text in James 5. He said, The purpose for which it was introduced, this event about Elijah, the purpose for which it was introduced was to show that God answers prayer and not to demonstrate how He does it. It is enough for us to know that He does. We may properly leave to Him the providential operations by which it is accomplished. The lesson is simply this. Elijah was a mere man. God answered his prayer. He will therefore answer ours as well. I think that is the point that James is making. And that's why he introduced the Elijah example. Right after he made the statement, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, he then gives Elijah as an example. So Elijah's prayer was not answered because Elijah had miraculous ability, though he did perform miracle on occasion. But that's not the point here. James is saying, Elijah was a man just like you. He was, a, he was a human being just like the rest of us. He prayed and God responded. His point is, you can pray and God will respond to you. Alright? So we distinguish between miracle and providence and deism. But I want for us before, again, we get into the text of Esther, I want us to talk about the limitations of providence. God's providence 
is for our spiritual good, not necessarily our material good. Okay? When we defined providence, you remember we talked about how providence can kind of be subdivided into general providence and special providence? Remember us talking about that? General providence is God's superintendence of the entire world and His benevolence exercised toward everyone regardless of their spiritual condition. And we use passages like Matthew 5.45 as an example of that. Uh, God causes the sun to rise on the evil as well as the good. The rain falls on the just as well as the unjust. Okay? Well, the, the sunshine, the rain, all of that, those, those are expressions of God's providence. God providing for His creation. It, and it doesn't matter your spiritual condition. We all benefit from that. Special providence is God's benevolent superintendence of the lives of His people. The lives of those who have devoted themselves to Him. And we, as children of God, are recipients of blessings that people who are not children of God don't have. Okay? And that's God's prerogative. We, we have blessings that they don't have. The people in the world who are rebelling against God, has God forgiven their sins in their rebellion? No. But if you come to God and submit to Him, He forgives. Okay? So there are blessings we have that they don't. So that's special providence. Answered prayer. Okay, that's, that's a blessing for God's children, not those who are living in rebellion against Him. All right, so when we talk about God's special providence, that is for our spiritual good and not necessarily our material good. Now, sometimes material blessings are the result of providence, general providence especially, right? And even special providence sometimes involves material blessings. I think about Matthew 6, verse 33, in the context of, of Jesus saying, uh, you know, don't be anxious about the, the necessities of life. But his promise in Matthew 6, 33 is, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So the person who seeks first the kingdom of God has the special promise that God is going to make sure that they have their needs met. So that special providence, and it involves material prosperity. So sometimes that's the case. But not always. Sometimes the providence of God may allow and does allow hardship in material things. Um, perhaps it's financial hardship without God violating His promise to see that our needs are met. But there may be some form of hardship. There may be uh, illness or other trials that God allows to happen to us. But therefore, the purpose of developing our spiritual character. So it's hard sometimes to look at difficulties in life as blessings, as evidence of God's providence. But the truth of the matter is, they are. James 1, verses 2 through 4, remember that? Count it all what? when you fall into manifold trials? Joy. Count it all joy when you fall into manifold trials. How can you do that? Well, he tells you in the next verse, knowing that the trying or testing of your faith does what? Produces patience. All right? Endurance. 
So James says, when you look at your life and you find yourself having fallen into some kind of difficulty, hardship, he said, look at that as an occasion for joy because it's through those difficulties and hardships that God helps develop within us the character traits that we want to have, like patience, courage, things like that, perseverance. Okay, you don't, and I've said this before, it's not my quote, I just don't remember where I heard it or read it. You don't get patience by reading a book about it. Now, you may learn some things about patience by reading, but you're not going to develop patience just by reading about it. You develop patience when you properly endure difficulties. And so if we're going to develop those kinds of traits, isn't, and, and isn't that a good thing, to develop patience, to develop courage, to develop fortitude and perseverance? Yeah, that's all good stuff. So for our spiritual good the development of those characteristics, God may allow us to face material or physical difficulty and hardship. All right? But that's still God's providence. God is providing us the means by which we can develop our character. All right? So when we talk about providence, we're talking about that which promotes our spiritual good more than our material good, even though sometimes God does provide materially good things for us in His providence. That makes sense? Okay. Another thing about the limitations of problems. We should not assume that all things are the direct result of divine providence. Okay? We should not just automatically assume that anything and everything that happens is the direct result of divine providence. That may not necessarily be true. Look at, uh, in your Old Testaments, turn over to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 9. Ecclesiastes, chapter 9, verse 11. Ecclesiastes, of course, is Solomon's um, account of his attempt to understand life, to find out life's meaning, life's purpose. What's it all about? What does it all mean? And he writes the book of Ecclesiastes after he's gone through that journey and he reveals, here are the things that I learned. And here's one of them. Ecclesiastes 9.11. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Solomon is saying, one of the things that I discovered was that things don't always turn out the way you think they should. That it, it's not always that the intelligent person receives this blessing or that blessing. He said, one of the things I discovered is some things just happen. Time and chance happen to them all. So when we assess life, it, it is, it's not only not wise... It's, it sometimes can be flat wrong to say this thing happened because God willed it to happen. I know sometimes we mean well, but sometimes in, in our 
expressing ourselves as well-intentioned as we may be. Sometimes we just flat say the wrong things. Uh, and, and sometimes it comes from a misunderstanding of some of the things that, that, that the Bible talks about. Um, sometimes things just happen. It's not because God caused it. It's not, it's not because God willed it. Sometimes things just happen. Time and chance happen to them all. All right? So don't assume that everything that happens is the direct result of divine providence, that God has caused it to happen. You know, some things are the result of Satan's direct activity. Don't we live in a world where he's active? Yeah. Doesn't he walk about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour? First Peter 5 eight. Yeah. What about Job? You remember Job? Who was directly responsible for Job's suffering? Satan was. Now God allowed, again, certain things to happen. But God was not the direct cause of what happened to Job. And, and the book of Job is clear about that. Satan did that. So some things that happen in our world that are, uh, that are difficult, that are hard to deal with, things that happen that we have difficulty answering, why did that happen? The Bible reveals that sometimes that's a result of Satan's activity. And, and so therefore God is not to be blamed for those things that happen. And that's another thing that the book of Job teaches us. Sometimes things happen as the direct result of the free choices that are made by evil people. We're going to talk about free will uh, probably some tonight, but we won't finish that discussion tonight, I doubt. But we're going to talk about free will. And sometimes people make free decisions that are evil, and other people suffer because of that. What if, um, you know, what if, what if I'm driving down the road and coming in the other direction toward me is somebody who has just spent the last several hours in a bottle and, and, and they're so drunk they can't hardly see and, and they swerve across the center line and, and hit my car. And, and cause me pain or death. Well, whose fault is that? Did God do that? No. That person, that person made a choice. I also made a choice. My choice placed me at that location. But my choice didn't cause my pain. That person's choice is directly responsible for that. That's the world in which we live. Where... God has made this world as the place for people to make their decision regarding where they want to spend the next life. That's what this world is for. And if we're going to truly be able to make choices, to make that choice, then that leaves open the possibility that there are going to be people who make the wrong choice. And when people make the wrong choice and they make a bad choice, that has the potential to affect others. That's the world in which we live. Okay, so sometimes things happen as a direct result of choices made by evil people. Alright, so we've got to remember those limitations of providence. We can't assume that everything that happens is the direct result of divine providence. That God made it happen. That's just not true. 
What God will do, however, is provide for us the means by which we can persevere through whatever happens, whoever's responsible. That's a blessing God provides in His special providence to His children. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. Romans 8, 35-39. And He even lists stuff. Tribulation and persecution and all kinds of things. None of that can separate us from God's love that's in Christ. Romans 8, 39. Okay? So, with that said, as we talk about the limitations of providence, <clears throat> with all of that being true, and I believe it is, that's why it's, it's better for us when we speak of providence to speak of it in the same way that individuals in Scripture spoke of it. Examples, let's look at Esther, since that's uh, our main focus <clears throat> for this class. Look at Esther chapter 4. We'll get ahead of ourselves just a little bit. <clears throat> Esther chapter 4 is, is where the queen, Esther, is in a position as queen to do something positive that can help save her people. And her cousin, Mordecai, is trying to convince her to take that step out and do that thing that can help save her people. Okay, And in the process of talking about that, here's what Mordecai says, verse 14. Esther 4.14. 4, if you, Esther, keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. All right? Mordecai was confident that God's people were going to survive one way or the other. But he says, Esther, who knows, he says in the next phrase, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai said, I'm convinced God's going to save His people regardless. But Esther, think about this. Who knows but that you haven't been put in this position so that you can be the one to do that. He was leaving open the possibility that God had been providentially working to put Esther in that position so she could do something at that strategic time in history. But, but he spoke of it by saying, who knows? Mordecai didn't know. He didn't know for certain that that's what God had been doing. And so he left open the possibility that providence was at work, but he didn't know for sure. All right, look over into the New Testament, the book of Philemon. The little one-chapter book hidden between Titus and Hebrews. Philemon, verse number 15. This, this is Paul writing about a man named Onesimus, who was a servant of Philemon's. And Onesimus ran away, encountered Paul in Rome was converted to Christ, obeyed the gospel, and now Paul was sending him back to his home. And he's sending him with this letter with the encouragement for Philemon to accept him back. Not just as a servant, but as a brother beloved of the Lord. And in explaining all of that, Paul says, verse 15, For perhaps 
This is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. Here was an inspired apostle assessing that whole situation. What was it that prompted Onesimus to leave? And how did he end up so many thousands of miles from his home and ends up coming into contact with the Apostle Paul and he obeys the gospel and he's, and he's the servant of somebody that Paul knows? How, how did all that happen? We look at it and say, well, God had to be at work in that. And we may very well believe that's true. Paul seems to believe that's true. But again, even the inspired apostle, when he's writing about that, said, you know what? Perhaps this is why that worked out the way it did. Paul didn't even know for sure. Perhaps. So when we, when we talk about God's providence, I think it's wise for us to use that example. Use both of those examples and, and speak of providence in terms of perhaps. The reason why we know that God works providentially in the world is because the Bible tells us that He so works in the world. That's why we know providence is true. But for me to take a particular event in my life and say, I know that God directly caused that, I don't know that. Because time and chance happen to them all, Ecclesiastes 9. Things sometimes just happen. God sometimes does cause things to happen directly, providentially. But we know that because the Bible teaches it. But I don't know which instances of life circumstances are the direct result of God's activity and which ones aren't. None of us knows that. So, yes, we can affirm providence, but when we try to apply it to specific situations, I think we need to be cautious in that. You know, I can look at my own life... <clears throat> And uh, this is going to sound cheesy, I know, but I, I can look at the circumstances that, that brought Mary and me together. And I, I love to believe that that was God's providence at work. I, I do. I like to believe that. Uh, and I'm not going to bore you with all the details. But, uh, you know, that's, that's my belief. I can't prove that for anything. There's no way I can prove that. But that's the nature of providence. With a miracle, it was evident. And that's the difference between miracle and providence. With a miracle, it was evident. The, the dead person came to life instantaneously. The person who was blind is instantaneously given sight. The person with the withered hand, it's instantaneously whole. Okay? With miracle, it's evident. With providence, it's not. It's not evident to us. We can't tell just by the circumstances that God is personally responsible. Okay? Does that make sense? Alright. So we gotta, I think we need to respect the limitations of providence and speak of it in terms of perhaps when we're applying it to specific situations. Okay. Yes, Doug, help me. <clears throat> Yes. Yeah. 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 Providence is um, we we have that special promise in Romans eight 
that's a part of God's special providence for His people, that, that, that all things will work together for good to those who love the Lord. That's a, that's, a blessing, that's a statement that affirms God's special providence for His people. How God does that is what's not revealed, right? And so, um, and so we need to, number one, we need to be grateful for the blessing that we're promised there. But on the other hand, we need to be careful that we that we don't try to fill in the blanks that God has left blank okay? by trying to figure out how God is doing that. The mechanics of providence are not described in Scripture. The fact of it is affirmed. And I'm certainly not going to deny a biblical fact just because I can't explain the mechanics of how God does it. Okay, Just leave, leave to God those mechanics and, and let us just rejoice in the fact of it. All right, free will. Just enough time to cause confusion, and, uh, and then we'll try to fix all that next time. Now, the, the truth of the matter is, this is one of the most difficult matters to harmonize in a discussion of God's sovereignty and God's providence. And that is the role of human free will in all of that. In other words, let me put it in the form of a question. How can God cause certain events to happen without violating the free will of the human beings that he's using to carry out his will? Okay, That's, that's the, the difficulty sometimes in discussing providence and sovereignty and free will. We're going to, re, we're going to study the book of Esther. We're going to see that Throughout that book, event after event after event after event happens that falls right into perfect place for the, the, the story to come out the way it comes out, where God's people are ultimately saved. And, and we're going to go back, after we kind of dissect the text toward the end of the quarter, I'm, I'm going to go back and, and we're going to look at a lot of what-if questions. What if this hadn't have happened? And what if this had not have happened? And what if this had not have happened? And any one of those what-ifs, if it did not happen the way it happened, then the story is not going to turn out the way it ended up turning out. So all of this stuff played a part. But all of these integral parts of that story involve individuals making choices. So how could God be responsible for directing those events without violating an individual's free will to make the choices that they make? That's a hard question. Think about, um, we're going to look at some of these passages uh, in the book of Daniel, where Daniel says with regard to Nebuchadnezzar, he'll say, God sets up kings and kingdoms, and He gives kingdoms to whosoever He wills. But isn't it oftentimes, isn't it always, when a leader comes to the forefront of any kingdom, that that is the result of choices that a whole lot of people make? Yeah. So how can God be the one responsible for setting up rulers in kingdoms 
And that process, from our perspective, involves the free will choices of a whole lot of folks. All right, you chew on that a while, and uh, and we'll we'll look at that, uh, God willing, next Wednesday night, and uh, we'll we'll pull in some passages that affirm both of those concepts. We'll look at Bible verses that affirm unquestionably that we have the freedom to make choices, and we're going to look at passages that also say. God works out everything according to the counsel of His will. Well, how do you mesh those two? All right. That'll be our discussion for next time. All right? All right. Thank you much. Appreciate it.